This is a Federal News Network podcast. Even as it debates a trillion here and a trillion there, Congress hasn't overlooked some of the close-to-home issues like federal pay. They're back in town and fully engaged, and for what to look for in the week ahead, we turn to Bloomberg Government Congress reporter Jack Fitzpatrick. Jack, good to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. And let's talk about the issue of kind of small thing for the world, but a big thing for federal employees, and that discussion on locality pay, raising the pay of hourly federal workers, the lower level people that are sensitive to locality pay and, and hourly rates. Yeah, yeah. So there there is another bill that is introduced. This is similar to a bill that's been introduced in previous years. It's basically led by Bob Casey in the Senate from Pennsylvania and Matt Cartwright, also from Pennsylvania, uh, in the House, both Democrats. It's got Democratic co-sponsors, but not Republicans. So that's a, a warning there. But this would seek to address the fact that there are different systems of payments and uh, that leads to different systems of pay increases for federal employees based on whether they're salaried or hourly. This basically would seek to uh, do right, especially by the hourly uh, employees and require uh, that all employees in a certain local area get the same kind of pay adjustment so that there's not this increasing gap between salaried and hourly workers. I, I believe this is of particular importance to at least some members because uh, they have uh, defense installments in their districts and that can uh, make this particularly relevant. So it, it's not entirely clear what the path forward is for this bill, especially because right now the co-sponsors are, are Democrats, but this is a, an issue that they've raised in the past and probably good for them this year now that Democrats have the House, Senate, and the White House. It's sort of a combination of a good government issue, if you want to correct little inequities that happen in a system as complicated as federal employment. Yeah, I mean, there there are a lot of different ways in which Democrats have come in in a majority and sought to uh, improve pay or or benefits for federal employees. This will be an interesting one. You know, I mentioned that this is particularly relevant, I believe, to some members uh, who have military bases or something like that in their district, because for this kind of legislation, as you mentioned, that as they get to the small stuff, the question always is, do you attach it to something bigger? And uh, going forward, I will be curious to see if they make this part of the broader discussion on a defense authorization bill or something like that. It's always an uphill battle for a, a seemingly small piece of legislation to become law on its own. So I, I think one of the next big questions going forward on this kind of thing is, is there a legislative vehicle? Does it get pulled into broader discussions? And, and maybe the NDAA is the path for that. Yeah, I call those the big magnets that carry along the little iron shavings with them. And yeah. by the way, no real action on the shape of the NDAA for 2022 at this point, is there? Not lately. That's something where, you know, a lot of the regular stuff has been pushed back with all the focus on first a stimulus and then infrastructure and then whatever you want to call the American Families Plan. There's, we're still kind of transitioning in Congress from the big Biden legislative agenda to the things that have to happen uh, on a regular basis. So NDAA and government funding, which are two big legislative vehicles for other things that you might want to tack on to them, uh, might be on a little bit of a delayed schedule. It does sound like they're they're going to try to get moving on that, but we haven't seen a lot of action so far. 
And of course, the federal government in many, many agencies, five, six, seven, eight, nine agencies and thousands of people in those agencies got a huge homework assignment from the Biden administration in that executive order on cybersecurity that came out earlier this week. I counted, uh, well, I actually pasted the whole thing into Word and found out that it was 8,080 words long, this executive order, in case anyone was wondering. I guess that includes the parentheses, C parentheses types of things, too. But regardless, any reaction on the Hill to that? You know, there's a broad reaction on the Hill, obviously, to the colonial pipeline hacking and the need for Congress to step in and do something. A lot of the response to Biden's individual uh, actions on this have been pretty politicized. You know, the the political conversation around a gas shortage combined with some recent concerns about inflation uh, have led Republicans to start with the Jimmy Carter comparisons. But beyond the politics of it, you know, there, there have been some responses from lawmakers on a bipartisan basis saying energy sector cybersecurity is not really something that the president can just do on his own. This is something that for the long term at least needs to be legislated upon. There are a couple bills out there uh, that that have had some bipartisan work on them. Things that, you know, for example, would make cybersecurity more of a core function of the Department of Energy. Um, one other example that, that lawmakers have brought up is more training to electric utilities. I haven't heard much of a response to this colonial pipeline uh, with huge mandates. Uh, you know, there's concern over their decision to pay the $5 million uh, ransom to the hacking group. Uh, I haven't heard a, a bunch of people step up and say, let's ban companies from doing this or that. But there, there is a lot of interest on the Hill for the long term in things like improving communication between the federal government, maybe some requirements more on reporting these kinds of things. Uh, but the, the, again, the question is, how do you pass that? Do you attach it to something larger? Because this could get bumped aside when they're working on bigger things like infrastructure. We're speaking with Jack Fitzpatrick. He's a Congress reporter for Bloomberg government. And one committee voted, I guess, in favor of a postal reform legislation piece that could maybe have traction for Congress as a whole. And what have you seen there? This is an issue for years that has had bipartisan interest. But the question is, if lawmakers are going to eliminate this requirement for the Postal Service to pre-fund their health care requirements to the extent that they have been since uh, the Bush administration, the last time a, a big bill on this was passed, then what else is going to happen to shore up the finances? The fiscal conservatives who have worked on this have said, you know, they're open to eliminating this pre-funding requirement which goes above and beyond what a lot of other organizations would do, but only if there are some other issues there to to make sure they're in the clear financially. And so Republicans who liked the 10-year plan that Louis DeJoy brought out, I think were nudged along to work on this bill that would eliminate that requirement and redo some of the how the health care requirements are set up for the Postal Service. And now it does have bipartisan support Uh, at least in the House. We'll see if that transfers over to the Senate. I know there were some complaints from one of the federal employees unions about potentially raising premiums for other 
federal workers. Uh, but that that is something that Carolyn Maloney, the chair of this House uh, committee, has said it might be addressed through just a technical amendment. So there may be a little more work to do, but it's a promising thing to see significant bipartisan support for this. And we should mention, too, there's thinking about the debt ceiling is coming soon. And it's always this incremental raise of the debt ceiling to what they have. Any thought of maybe just going to a quadrillion and then they'll be good for the next 10 or 12 years. Yeah, I'm sure there are lawmakers who would love that idea or just eliminating the debt ceiling. Uh, I think the funniest quote I hear on this uh, from a Democrat, Sheldon Whitehouse, describes the debt ceiling as a bear trap in your bedroom. The best case scenario is you just don't get caught by it. Um, But, you know, if you ask fiscal conservatives about this, they do see this as a, a point of leverage to say, if we're going to increase the debt ceiling, what are we going to do to reduce the debt or at least reduce the deficit? Uh, so keep in mind, Senate Republicans actually changed their conference rules, which are not binding, but is sort of a political statement saying that any measure to increase or suspend the debt ceiling should be accompanied by a measure that would offset that increase. So spending cuts or something like that. Um, that probably is a signal that Republicans are not going to go along with a clean debt ceiling increase. So the question is, what exactly do they want to attach to it? Uh, And where do moderate Democrats stand? Uh, You can increase the debt ceiling through budget reconciliation, which would allow you to do it in a partisan way through the Senate. But with the narrow majorities that Democrats have, where exactly does Joe Manchin come down? Where do the blue dog Democrats in the House come down on this? Do they want any uh, spending cuts or limitations there? That's going to be the next big question. They'll have a couple months to figure this out. It's a, a strange deadline because it it's technically is August 1st, but then they can bump it back. Uh, so at some point, late summer or fall, they'll have to figure that out. Yeah. So if there's a spending cut with it, you could call it son of sequestration. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I know there are some lawmakers who don't know what to do with themselves now that the sequestration risk is gone from the budget caps that existed for a decade that actually forced Congress to have bipartisan conversations on how much to spend. Uh, No one seems to know right now how they're going to have those conversations with the uh, Budget Control Act caps gone. But at least, you know, if you're a fiscally conservative Republican questioning what are we going to do on a fiscal stance with Biden in charge, Uh, your point of leverage is probably the debt limit, which is why this is going to be a a really interesting conversation, potentially contentious conversation, uh, sometime as we get closer to August. Jack Fitzpatrick is Congress reporter for Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. 
look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there've been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the US Ch Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community 
uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. It's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of of being a leader, uh, and 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 I, I I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the. Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, 
the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.